Well, how's everybody doing this evening? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to Life Community. If uh, you are new around here, we just want to extend a special welcome to you. My name is Tim. I have the privilege of pastoring here. And uh, let me just ask, do we have any Star Wars nerds out there? You kind of, yeah? So there's like, how many Star Wars movies? Nine? I can't keep track anymore. So my kids know. My kids know all of them, right? And, and here's the thing about Star Wars movies. I remember the original three. Anybody else watch those? Yeah. So the thing about Star Wars movies, and if you're not a Star Wars nerd, you won't know this, but, you know, beyond the original three stories, you know, you've got the blowing up the Death Star, the Ewoks, the, you know fighting, they're fighting the man, the empire, right? You got all that good stuff. You got Luke finding his father, you know, Luke, Luke, that, that whole thing. But in the midst of that, that's only a small part of the overall story, right? And so the, for those of us that really aren't Star Wars nerds, and I've not watched them all, uh, my kids are trying to get me to watch the very last one, and I, I, they haven't convinced me yet, but um, I've not watched them all. But what you got to understand, they try to explain all this to me about you know, I don't know, Sith Lords and all this weird stuff. I, I, don't, I don't just get how it all ties together because I don't understand the context, right? But for them, they're these individual moments, these first three movies that I watched and, you know, they were so cool, but they're just like, they're part of this overall story and these victories and these losses are part of just this epic ongoing struggle between good and evil in, in the story, right? And so, but to understand all that, you kind of got to be a nerd. You kind of have to understand the backstory. And here's the thing. The book of Exodus is part two in the first five-section part of a 66-part epic. And so here, what you got to understand as we go through this, and we've been talking about this along the way, is you have to understand the context of the story Otherwise, what happens, if you don't understand the context of the whole story, you're going to bump up against some things in Exodus as we go along, or Leviticus, um, which I don't think we're going to preach through verse by verse. Can somebody say thank you? Or amen, thank you. But you're going to bump up some things against some things that are going to very likely, especially if you're sort of on the fringes and you're just checking out God's church in the Bible, if you bump up against some of these things, you will very likely find some things that just make you um, kind of make a judgment call about God, about his goodness. So specifically some things about God in the Old Testament. Because here, here's the thing, while the Old Testament, while Exodus actually reveals God as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, it also reveals him as a warrior. In Exodus 15, it says the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name, which honestly is a little um, offensive to our modern sensibilities, isn't it, in this day and age? I mean, any, anything that smacks of God somehow being a warrior, that's, uh, you know, we kind of try to sort of gloss over those scriptures. And here's, here's a couple reasons why I think as we go through some of these scriptures, and we're going to hit this in just a minute, why we find stuff that we don't quite understand or that's not quite in context, and it becomes kind of offensive to our modern Sensibilities. One of them is we're reading ancient texts through modern sensibilities, which is never a good idea. Because people, the way people think 200 years ago is very different than the way th people think today. And the way people thought 3,500 years ago is even that much further removed still, right? And so for people kind of come in and just checking out or maybe skeptical of the Bible, they read some of these ancient texts and, and think things, maybe this was your college class, right? Think things like, man, the Bible is just a, a misogynistic, racist text. Well, what you got to understand, you read some passages. In fact, um, and here's the thing. It is true that Paul's words and some of the words in the Bible were twisted in the 1800s to try to justify slavery. That's true. But when you go back and you set these writings of Paul in the context of the culture, they are so forward thinking. It's, it's, it's incredible. As you read some of these scriptures like uh, 
Um, like Galatians 28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's revolutionary 2,000 years ago. That kind of something that could overcome those bonds. And as you talk about those, those different things, it's, it's something that could overcome those differences. That's a revolutionary thing, right? Or you have this little tiny book called Philemon. We preached it one Sunday years ago. And this is this revolutionary text. And what's really interesting about it is Paul meets this, this character, Onesimus, and uh, he ends up sending this guy that's actually a slave of this other of this other guy back to his master who's also a believer but he sends a letter to the to the master and says but you got to treat him like a brother and see in a culture 2,000 years ago Paul knew what's important is the gospel going forward and this kind of thinking was so revolutionary at this time in history that that basically he is setting the stage for what later people like Wilberforce and Lincoln would come along and abolish slavery right and it's based on the work of Paul, even though some people had twisted his words. All right. So that's one thing, reading ancient texts through modern sensibilities. The second thing is, uh, the, the, the second trouble we have as we read through these passages is reading with a lack of context. And that's just simply not understanding why the thing is in this place in the scripture for this time. And so maybe in a college class or high school class, you heard something about the God of the Old Testament, and it's this idea of this angry, judgmental God. Maybe you heard about the conquest of Canaan, which we're going to begin to see some beginnings of here in the scripture today. And God is pictured as this judgmental, genocidal maniac. Whereas then you get to the New Testament, it's like God is love. And people like that. And this is the way that it's portrayed, right? And a lot of this is because you don't understand the context of both the time and history when this is written and the barbaric cultures that we cannot even comprehend in our modern sensibilities. And then the second thing is the place and time that this is set in Scripture. And because of these things, people oftentimes, as they grow up, as they head out you know, into the world, they, they either reject their faith or they end up rejecting God. Or they tend to have a very dumbed-down, watered-down impression of who God is that makes God very small in their eyes, sort of just like their, their personal friend and Savior, which that's a truth, right? He, he is our personal Savior, but Jesus is not your homeboy. God is, uh, I love, C.S. Lewis said, uh, God is not tame. He's not tame, right? He was talking about Aslan, but we all know the story. If you've read it, great books. And for some people, they live a life where actually God is just sort of uninvolved. I call this functional deism, where you, you claim to have certain set of beliefs that God is active in this world and active in life, but when it really boils down to it, you basically live your life like an atheist. Like God is not actually tangibly involved in life at all. So as we hit Exodus chapter 17 today, to understand this epic story of what God is accomplishing in this world, you have to read and understand some of these tough passages through the eyes of how an original reader would have thousands of years ago. And so I am going to attempt to not make your eyes glaze over and it may be a little hard because we're gonna get into the weeds today. So can I just ask, are you guys awake? Okay, we've been kind of preaching through these, through these texts, uh, which means, you know, just drawing out these applications and really trying to drive them home. Today, we're going to more teach through this text, which is my goal for you to learn something that's going to be important in your spiritual life. Sometimes you have a great big application, and other times you just need to know and have a context that's going to be important in your spiritual life. And it's going to be a little bit more of that along the way. We're going to have some very uh, uh, poignant applications too. But uh, So just to set the stage here as we get to Exodus chapter 17, God has rescued his people dramatically from Egypt. He's delivered them through the Red Sea. Uh, he's judged their the oppressing army that pursues them. And three days later, they're grumbling, they're complaining, and in his grace, he provides them with water, miraculously. And then 30 days later, they're hungry, or like we said last week, they're getting hangry in the desert. 
We can all identify with being angry, right? And they, get, they again start grumbling and complaining and actually impugn the character of God saying, you just brought us out here to kill us. And God in his great grace provides for them miraculously with manna. And he'll go on doing that for 40 years every morning out in the desert. It's an incredible, incredible account. And so that's where we pick it up right after God provides manna for them in Exodus chapter 17. And we're going to read through a a section of this, and I'm going to stop and talk about it. I'm going to read kind of a lot of scripture today, although this is a short chapter, so that's the good thing. Uh, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Again, Right after God has miraculously taken care of their hunger, he gave them quail first, and then, boom, manna. These flaky, frosted flake, yummy things all over the ground that they could take and gather and turn into food. Now they're grumbling again. This is a a pattern. But God, in his grace, here's here's what God does. Moses replied, why... Um, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And anytime you've just seen God move mightily, mightily and miraculously or you know God's moved in the past and you've seen his faithfulness, the question to ask again when you again find yourself in the place where your back is up against the wall is What? I wonder how God's going to work this time. You'd think they'd be getting this by now. God's come through. Wow. Okay, he rescued us. We were, we were freaked out. We didn't know how that one was going to work. God, um, now we complain. God comes through. Wow. Again, God comes through. Wow. They're just not getting it. They're not getting it. So then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff, this will be important, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Remember, Moses struck the Nile with the staff and one of the judgments on that specific um, idol God of Egypt was that the Nile turned to blood. So he takes the staff, the staff also, he raises and it's, it's the instrument or the tool representing God's power and he raises it and it is the thing that brings them deliverance and then judgment on the armies of Egypt. So he takes the staff uh, and go. Verse six, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so really quick, um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get on to kind of the, the, the trajectory of where we're heading tonight. But what you see is this, this, this incredible time, again, again, complaint, and again, God's grace, God's deliverance for this people who so quickly forget what he's done, who lack trust, and you see this, just this grace that's given to them. And the story is heading just in a couple chapters where God will begin giving them the family rules, the law, the instructions for his people, how to establish his nation here on earth. And he's gonna begin doing that. But before he ever says, here's how I want you to live, he, he delivers them, he frees them. It's such a beautiful picture of what he does for us. And this specific scripture is a um, a snapshot. It's a signpost looking forward to Jesus. And when Jesus came, Jesus is known as the stone that the builder rejected. Jesus, just like Moses struck the rock, Jesus would allow himself to be struck for us so that we could experience life. In John 4, he said, hey, everyone who drinks this water, talking about the well with the Samaritan woman, will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
And Jesus also says a little later in John, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who had believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So there's this beautiful picture all the way back here, 1,500 years earlier in, in Exodus of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all these scriptures, right? And so I just want to keep going here because next they come to their first battle. And this is a really interesting story and a really interesting scripture. And so I'm going to just read through it fairly quick and then we're going to stop for a minute and try to give you the broader context because this is one of those scriptures that if you don't understand it in the context of what's happening here, you miss a lot of the important details and you will tend to see God in the light of a petty, judgmental figure instead of understanding what's going on here in the story. And so in verse eight, it says this, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, these names are significant, and I'll explain that to you in just a minute. Um, but Rephidim, so this unprovoked, as the people of God, is heading through the desert towards Mount Sinai, towards the place where God will meet them, towards this place um, really where the presence of God is going to come down in just a spectacular way. And God, uh, this people group, unprovoked, comes out and attacks them. Seems kind of random, right? But it's not. So verse nine, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up on one side, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Now, this is the cool story, isn't it? I mean, you've heard this. In fact, um, we did this series, kind of year-starting series, uh, a little over a year and a half ago, and we actually preached through this. And one of the reasons why I wanted to take a different tack through this is because we preached through this. And there's some incredible applications. I mean, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably saw this one on the felt board, right? Moses with his hands up and guys holding his arms, right? And just think about that. These two dudes had to stand next to him and, and hold. He's got the staff of God in his hands, holding it up. And these guys got to get right up there, right by the pits, you know? The desert. Dude hasn't showered in like, yeah. No deodorant. Some of you are like, I have a middle school friend like that. I, I understand, right? Try raising a middle school boy. And that's, I mean, it's just so, you know, it's awkward. But so there's some really cool applications. And probably the one you heard most is, this is why the power of prayer is so important. And that's true. It's actually not what's going on in the passage. And this is why it's so important to get people around you praying with you. Also, true. But it's not actually what's going on, the specific thing that's main, you know, the main thing in the passage. The other really cool application out of this, and maybe this is just for some of you, and I'm going to breeze past this, but I think it's important to highlight that some of you are in a position in life where you feel like you just aren't in the spotlight like you wish you were. And the, the thing that's so vital, uh, understanding this cool thing, as Moses begins to tire as doing the job that God has called him to do, as he begins to tire out, as, as he begins to lose steam, he needs people around him. And so these guys around him who weren't in the spotlight, they get to come on in and they get to have this very un, uh, a little awkward and smelly job of holding up his arms. And Moses, in, in, in this way, in an indirect way, they're the heroes in the story. And I think that's so important. 
Because some of you just feel like, man, all I do is, you know, I'm in this role and I'm not ever in the spotlight. I don't feel like my gifts are being fully developed or feel fully used. But in this season of life, God has you in a place where you are supporting someone and the work that you're doing in their life is so vital and God is moving in that situation and he's using you to, to accomplish the thing that he wants to accomplish. That's worth an amen. Thank you, front row. I just think it's such an incredible application. But, again, it's not the main point of the passage. Why is it in this passage? And then let's just go on. Because if you just stop there, you're going to miss something really important. So it goes on in verse 13. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword, which is awesome. They, they, they win the victory. They take the day, right? Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek, Amalek from under heaven. What? Yeah, yeah, no, Joshua, he's going to be the, the future leader. So write this down. Make sure he gets this and is in the know on this because he's going to have a job later and he's, I'm going to actually use him to, to do this, but I'm going to completely block, blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Wow, that seems a little harsh, God. Anybody else? I mean, I know they kind of came out. I mean, they did come out. It was unprovoked, Right? It was unprovoked. Um, Verse 15. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. Or or standard. Think of, um, in ancient times, they would hold up a banner or a standard up on a hill. And it would be the rallying cry as they looked up there. The thing that gave them hope, right? That's what's happening here. So Moses builds an altar in this place. He calls it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, or Yahweh. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Because hands were lifted up against the throne, or another good translation of this would be, because a fist was raised up against the throne of God. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites. Malachites from generation to generation. So what's going on here? Because just from a from a like a quick reading, it sure seems a little bit harsh, a little bit vindictive. It, it seems like does. Am I, I mean, am I the only one that sees that? Like, okay, well, these people came out and they you know they attacked the people, and and now God's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Kind of harsh. You see, this is why it's so important as you begin to read through Scripture to, to kind of get the overall idea of what's going on here. And so to do this, I'm going to have to take you to a passage in a second that pastors are terrified to preach. It's scary because it's so weird. Genesis 6. Can I get an amen on that from anybody that knows where I'm about ready to go here? All right, this is about ready to get weird, folks. But we gotta go here if you wanna understand the context of what's happening here. Because if you don't understand the context, you're liable to just think, well, God is just some sort of harsh, judgmental figure that just, you know, or what they told you in your college class that, you know, genocidal maniac that decides to wipe out this whole area in Canaan. And what you heard is, gosh, I don't know about that, but I'm not sure. But man, that sure doesn't sound like the God of love. And so probably for a lot of you, you just sort of push that aside out of your mind and said, I don't really want to think about that or deal with that. For others of you, there was a cognitive dissonance and you could not put that together with the fact that God was loved and it actually did damage to your relationship with God. And for many of you, your, your life, you kind of lived as a functional deist or even walked away from your faith for a period of time because of that. Those are the power of ideas. And so to understand this, you have to understand what's going on here. And literally this phrase, because a fist has been raised against the throne of God. 
And to understand the context, here's what you need to know. We first see the name Amalek in Genesis 36, hundreds of years before this. But the context doesn't even start there when we first see the name Amalek. The context starts with a war literally against God long before that. And it's tied to Babylon. But it even goes further back. It's tied to the state of the world before what's known in, in ancient history as the deluge. And it even goes further back to that to the deception of Eve in the garden by this creature known as the Naphtasha, the serpent, who we've come to know as the being Satan as we continue to progress. And it, and it goes beyond that to a rebellion in heaven where a created, beautiful, angelic being decides that it's not just enough to serve God, they want to be God, and he rebels against God and takes a third of the angels of heaven along with him. And I understand in 2020, it's kind of quite a leap to, for many people, especially if you're a skeptic, to think about like angels and demons and spiritual powers and all that. I mean, it's kind of nice to talk about God and think about God that helps us and God who we pray to and God that loves us and, and to think about going to heaven someday when we die. But when we think about th these other very real things that are in scripture, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around it. And so to understand kind of and set up this battle, you gotta go back to Genesis chapter six. And it's this really, really strange passage. First of all, there's a spiritual being that I, I said deceives Eve and humankind falls. The very next chapter. So Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden, which is literally this place where heaven and earth meets. God walks his presence. He comes down and literally walks with human beings. And, and this place of beauty and perfection, the garden. It's the picture of what God created life together and with him to be like. And, and, and humankind is deceived by the serpent also into the lie that it's not good enough just to, to, to worship God and to be his representatives here on earth, but that you can be like God. Satan deceives Eve. And so the next chapter you see Cain and Abel, the very first murder in history. And then from there, you have just names, 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 names. And, and here's the thing. Names, when we hit these, the names, names, names chapters of the Bible, it's so boring for us. Me too. But it's in those names, actually. Some of those names are very, very important and significant. So names, 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 names. And you get to chapter six. And, and the world has progressed and the population has increased. And, and now you get to this section of, of scripture that's just so weird and strange but it's so important to understanding the context of what's going on here. It's, it goes like this. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human beings were beautiful and, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal their days will be 120 years. At this point in the, in the uh, trajectory of scripture, in the genealogies, people were living hundreds and hundreds of years. Very long periods of time. And God says, no more. People are just too evil and wicked. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Anybody read this before? Anybody been like, what in the world? Come on, you don't have to be ashamed. You can raise your hands. No, you guys are just all so smart. You're like, no, we know all about this. <laughs> Hurry up. Hurry up. So here, here's what happens. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. 
So what in the world is going on here? This is such a strange passage and disturbing in so many ways. And just to give you a quick overview of this, there's two major ways of thinking about this. One is just basically the straight up literal translation of what it reads. Sons of God um, all throughout scripture referring to... um, referring to spiritual beings that are part of the heavenly council, um, angelic beings. And what you see here is this picture of angelic beings leaving the realm. We don't get this or understanding this, but coming and having relations with human beings and creating this race, a hybrid race. This is a very literal translation. Now, some scholars who have a real issue with a lot of the supernatural aspects of of this kind of thing think that this could just mean the human line of Seth, who was Adam and Eve's third son, um, along with the line of Cain coming together. I don't think that second explanation is a real strong one. And that leaves us, uh, but it could be, I'm not, you know, like I say, people smarter than me have been arguing about these things for a lot longer than I've been alive. And so it could be. But regardless of that, here's how, the, here's how this works itself out and, and why this is so important in this whole story. Is you have this deception in the Garden of Eden by a spiritual being who we come to know as Satan. And then you have these, this strange account, which this will be the thing right after this that leads God to judge the world with a flood. Again, many scholars would argue this was a localized flood, but um, from scriptural evidence and in my opinion from world geology, um, the account of a global flood sure makes a lot of sense. If you want information on that, talk to me. I'll hook you up with my dad and you can watch some incredible stuff. It's interesting. Especially if you live in Western Colorado because everywhere, literally, you drive, there's incredible evidence of the flood. In fact, the flood is one of the things in ancient history that is a common, that's such a common story that nobody really um, disputes that there must have been some kind of flood. They just dispute at what level. It was because it is so common in all the ancient stories. In fact, there's a Chinese, the Chinese character letter for boat means eight people in a boat, I think, or something like that. I, 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 yeah, something like that. Yeah. Vessel, that's it. Vessel, eight, eight people on a boat, which is the ark story of Genesis, so. Really interesting stuff. All right, so how does this all tie together? You're like, where is he going with this? And how does this tie into the Amalekites? I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Now in ancient history, and you gotta have a little history and don't glaze your eyes over. I'll be quite fast. In ancient history, you have these accounts of um, all these myths and all these legends, right? You have um, in Greek mythology, the, the Titans. Anybody heard of the Titans? You're like, yeah, the Tennessee Titans. Uh, that's based on something, right? But they're, they're this semi-divine race of giants. And this, this um, mythology likely originates in um, ancient Mesopotamian history from what's called the Apakulu story. And Babylonian history recounts that there's 10 kings before the deluge, followed by the reign of later kings. And to people in Babylon, so after the flood, in the scriptures, after the flood, there's this guy Nimrod, and he, he has a great kingdom. We talked about him a while ago when we did that whole talk on reducing technology in your life. And then the very next week, we went into lockdown and told you to only watch us online, and every one of us was on the internet for like 20 hours a day for the next two months. Remember that? Yeah, there was a little irony. Okay, so we talked about... Nimrod, Nimrod, right? And do you remember what I taught you to say if you were here that day? Nimrod, you don't, okay. So anyway, Nimrod raises his fist against God. And so he, he basically, at the Tower of Babel, it's this idea of this people with their fists raised to God. But the story goes deeper because in, in Mesopotamian culture, in the Apokalu story, um, there were, the Apokalu were these divine overlords, these giants that... that 
basically they were the people who helped the kings and gave them wisdom. And so to the people of Babylon, these people who you can tie back to the Nephilim in Genesis chapter six were respected and revered. And so to, to jump forward now, what happens as people groups begin to come down into Babylon, they um, later are, are, are uh, they're later taken over and these people groups filter down into the areas around Canaan. And these are the people that according to the Genesis story, and I know this is, is so kind of dense and so weird, but according to the Genesis story, these are the, the descendants of the Nephilim. The Rephaim, you hear that? These are giant clans. And the Amalekites, as you go back and listen to the history and the lineage of this, are actually tied to the Rephaim and the Nephilim, these giant clan peoples um, of, of the world. And what you got to understand about Scripture as you read through it, you go, okay, so what does that mean? Genesis 6 is based on um, some Mesopotamian myth or legend. Um, well, that was, is the way that secular scholars would explain it. But a scholar who believes that, that, that the scripture is, a word of, is the word of God, inspired word of God, would, would say that there's common, there was a common memory all throughout the world. As you go back and look at all these ancient myths and stories about the flood that are all over the world, that there's a common memory of this great event that happened. And there's common memories of this, of this incredibly strange spiritual event that happened on earth. And because of that, then scripture comes along and scripture provides a polemic or a commentary on what actually happened. No, basically what's happening here is scripture says, no, the Nephilim or the Apokalu were not heroes. This was a rebellion by spiritual beings against God who left their place, who left their dominion and came down and and procreated and, and created this race of people that were giants. And so flash forward hundreds of years, by the time you get to the conquest of Canaan, what is happening here is after Babylon, basically God tells the nations, there's a table of nations, and God says, all right, you want to rebel against me? You want to serve other gods? Go serve these demon idols that aren't even gods. See how that goes for you. And I'm going to raise up a new people for myself. In the very next chapter, we meet Abraham. The man who God will raise up a nation who will produce the, the line of the Messiah who will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But the first thing to give them this land is he's going to give them this land and in this process and what you see throughout the conquest of Canaan is everywhere that God says, I want you to go and basically exterminate the people in that they have these giant clans. Every single, everywhere. And so the the Story of scripture, and if you're a skeptic, I understand you're like, well, that is weird, right? But the story that scripture's telling us is that there is this battle against God that Satan and his minions have come and they continue to try to war. There's a fist raised to God. And so as God is bringing his people to Mount Sinai, the place where he will meet with his people, the power of Satan comes out to oppose him. Moses raises the staff and... The army is de defeated. And this people group that's mixed in with these weird Nephilim descendant giant clans are now, it's part of this cosmic battle between God and Satan. And God says, I'm gonna wipe these people out. These people that have been infected by this spiritual demon thing. So what do you do with that? <laughs> They're like giants, really? Like, it's 2020. Hey, we have murder hornets. I mean, 20, if 2020 could convince you of something, it's like crazy stuff happens, right? 2020. But you're like, really? Giants? Are you kidding me? And here's the thing. Nearly every ancient place around the world has legends of giants dwelling in the land. Ancient Egyptian texts. Talk about the Anakim, which are, again, this descendants of the Nephilim, these giants. You find um, ancient texts describing a battle where there's this pass, and they find these, these ancient peoples that were up to like eight foot seven tall. Goliath, you heard that one. You saw that one on the flannel board, right? Dude was about nine feet tall. 
Big guy. Um, so there's some kind of strange stuff that's in history too, isn't there? Outside of just scripture. Um, listen to this. This is weird. Anybody heard of Buffalo Bill? Cowboy? In his autobiography, he records a conversation with an American Indian about a tradition they had from the American Indians or the Native Americans. And here's, here's what it was. It was taught by the wise men of this tribe, the Sioux tribe, that the earth was originally peopled by giants who were fully three times the size of modern men. They were so swift and powerful that they could run alongside a buffalo, take the animal under one arm, tear off a leg, and eat it as they ran. So vainglorious were they because of their own size and strength that they denied the existence of a creator. When it lighted or lightninged, they proclaimed their superiority to the lightning. When it thundered, they laughed. This displeased the great spirit. And to rebuke their arrogance, he sent a great rain upon the earth. The valleys filled with water. Sound familiar? And the giants retreated to the hills. The water crept up the hills and the giants sought safety on the highest mountains. Still the rain continues and the waters rose and the giants having no other refuge were drowned. That's Native American history of legend. How did that happen? How did that line up so well with the Mesopotamian stories and history and then the Bible? Maybe something actually happened, folks. And the Bible comes along and says, hey, look, all these ancient myths and legends, now the heroes of the story in their story are not the heroes. They were the evil ones. And Babylon and the Tower of Babel was a fist raised against God. And there's a bigger thing going on here than just what you see on the surface. There's a spiritual realm and a spiritual battle. And there's two kingdoms that are at war. And all the other kingdoms of the earth are just representative of those two kingdoms. Now you go on from this and you look at all the other weird things in history that we can't really explain. Stonehenge. Still today, I read a history article um, in uh, history.com and it, it was like, yeah, we don't really know. Like even today, how, how did ancient people create this stuff? The pyramids, Easter Island. The truth is life is a lot weirder and we often take credit for it. And we often just put these things out of our mind because we have this naturalistic mindset that only what we can explain and observe through modern science must be true. But you look at the world, there's all these things. It's like, we don't get it. We don't understand it. I have a pastor friend who I dearly respect that was a mountain guide in the Himalayas. And he saw footprints with these incredibly wide strides in the middle of Nepal, in the middle of nowhere in the snow. And he's like, well, that's weird. What was that? I don't know. Draw your own conclusions, right? But it's weird. I mean, I totally trust this guy. The truth is that life is a lot weirder than it is. And, and, and here's the point of all this. As you read through this, you go, wow, that just like, that's weird. So Amalek, Nephilim, giants, this is, the point of all this is this is how a reader, even if you're a skeptic, even if you're like, well, I don't buy any of that. Okay, I understand. It can be hard to buy. So even if you're a skeptic that doesn't buy any of this or, or even think it's possible that this happened, when you impugn and judge the character of God based on your modern sensibilities, what you, what you don't understand is this is the way a modern or a current day reader of the scripture that was being written 3,500 days years ago, this is how they would interpret it. In the, in the terms of this big cosmic story. And so people that are reading this in the time that it's written go, oh, that's exactly what's going on. God is causing his people to go throughout this land and exterminate this giant demon class of race, right? And whether you can choose to believe that or not depends on your view of scripture. But life is pretty weird when you start boiling it down to it. So why not? Good question, right? And here's where I want to go, and here's where we're going to make this plane that's sort of doing this. Everybody's like, where is he going with this message? Here's where we're going to land. The tragedy of this situation is, again, um, the bigger picture, too, is God's trying to teach him to trust. 
And so God brings out this little, or God doesn't, this group of Amalekites comes out, fights against them. God defeats them in a way that everybody can see it's God. You know, when the rod of God is up, they're defeating. When Moses gets tired, they start losing. So clearly this is the power of God. That's the only reason they're winning the day. We'll flash forward just over a year. After God's presence comes in such a dramatic, powerful way at Sinai, he gives them the law. They, he's bringing them into the promised land. They send spies out into the promised land. And what do they see? Giants in the land. And they come back and they say this. They, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And they don't go into the promised land. They wander around for 40 years because they do not remember how God just delivered them. They don't remember it. They don't remember that God was powerful and active and alive in their lives. And so here, here's what I want to just challenge you with. That as you look at the place our nation is in right now, the chaos that we're in right now as a nation. The multitude of tragedies. All the hatred. All the, the, the hatred expressed towards individuals and towards each other. Scripture teaches there are two kingdoms. And our actions and our allegiances play into one of those kingdoms. And what I just want to submit to you for you to consider. And like I said, this is just something I think you need to know for life. Is when you look at the world you live in today, here's what Paul says about it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, Paul, he understood all this. He would have had probably the whole Old Testament memorized by heart. He understood this context. He understood this way of, of looking at the world. And this was his way of looking at the world. And he said, hey guys, when you look at all this, when you look at the persecution we're experiencing, here's what you gotta know. Your struggle is not against other people. Like other people, yeah, Nero, you know. It's not just, it's, you know, that other party that drives us crazy, you know, whatever. Either side drives each other crazy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. As you see the hatred and the violence and the anger, where's our struggle against? Just the powers and principalities. And let me just ask, do you think it's possible that beyond the things in the human heart, which Jesus talked about, that evil, we don't need anything to teach us to be selfish. That comes from within us. We don't need anything to teach us to hate each other. That comes from within us. But yet, I believe that there is an element that's happening in our world all over today of stark spiritual forces that are stirring up hatred, that are stirring up violence, that are stirring up these things we see in our nation. The conflict. And so Paul says, uh, he says, how do, you, how do you deal with that? What do you do? He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness, right living before God in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. This is your number one method of working in this world is prayer. We pray and we move in the opposite spirit. We pray and we move forward in love. That's what we do as believers. We pray for God to change hearts and we move forward in love. We pray, we walk in the opposite spirit. And we ask for protection. We ask for God to work against those powers. And so just to leave you with this thought, and this is the thought I want you to ponder as you've heard all these things. And this could be a whole series on spiritual warfare and what that all means and on the supernatural spiritual realm, which I firmly believe I have seen um, God move in powerful ways. I have seen the enemy manifest in different ways when praying for people and doing ministry, some freaky stories. I think this stuff's real, guys. And I think as you, I think if you live your life in such a way that you're a functional deist, that you believe that God's kind of up there, but basically everything in your life is just from naturalists, you know, only what you can see in front of you, that you're missing what's going on. You pray, you move in the opposite spirit. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And I just think during this crazy time in our nation, we need to remember that. People are not the enemy. People are are the mission field. People are the ones we're called to love. People are not the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for my friends. And Lord, in this... uh, Interesting passage of scripture that passages we looked at today. We remember, we're reminded that we're part of a much bigger story. And you have us here as your emissaries for you, for your kingdom that continues to grow around this earth. That you are pulling people from the kingdom of darkness and putting them into the kingdom of light simply through trust in you. And so, Lord, I, help, I just pray for each one of us that you would remind us as we go throughout this week that people are not the enemy, that there is an enemy, that we would be reminded to constantly be in prayer and to move in the opposite spirit. Thank you, Lord. Empower us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, thanks so much for being here for this long, circuitous message. Have a great week. We hope to see you next week. If you need prayer for anything, we're going to have a couple of folks from our ministry team up here. And don't leave without getting prayer. God bless. Have a great night.